Research for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this episode, I'm very happy to speak with Professor Hugh Dundwatt. Hugh is the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer. Hugh was appointed in his role in May 2018 by Premier Gladys Berger-Klian. Hugh is also a well-recognized expert in machine learning and autonomous robotics. And his academic research has been translated and commercialized in fields such as mining, cargo handling, and defense, with the creation of many spin-outs along the way. Before becoming the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer, Hugh was also the director of the Center for Translational Data Science at the University of Sydney, the chair of the New South Wales Government's Innovation and Productivity Council, and the CEO of National ICT Australia. Hugh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. Obviously, had a look at the website of the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer, which describes your duties and responsibilities. Can I start by, by asking you what, in your views, are the role of the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer? Yeah, we have, well, I have four roles, I guess. Uh, number one is I provide evidence-based uh, policy advice uh, right across government to premiers, ministers, and so on, and everything from energy to waste to uh, pollutants, uh, you name it, basically we're involved in it, particularly if it's controversial, because we're seen as an independent body. The second thing I do is I have a bucket of funding that I hand out mainly to universities to support particularly centres of excellence, critical research infrastructure, and increasingly translational research outcomes, which I might come back to a bit later on. Right. The third thing I do, which is new in this role and something I brought from previous uh, my previous role as Chief Scientist for the Ministry of Defence in London, is uh, to assist the state in its industry strategy, particularly around the attraction of companies to uh, the precincts in, again, space, defence, ag tech, digital, uh, you name it. And I really provide the technology input and the kind of understanding of where the universities what's uh, fit in in their research, how the skills can be developed, how we genuinely go around attracting some of these new ecosystems, I guess, to uh, key parts of Sydney. And that's a very important role. And I work very closely with um, Treasury, Premier and Cabinet, and clearly the industries themselves as part of this. And the third thing I do, which is an obvious thing, I guess, for chief scientists, is I promote science, technology and engineering, STEM, through um, presentations, through funding events, a number of other mechanisms. So that's really the role. It's quite a big role, uh, particularly given that I actually do the job only two days a week. Right. So that, that's actually a question. I have so many questions for you. But the first the, or the second one, given that you, you know you are a very successful academic career, why mm-hmm. did you accept the role of New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer? I really stopped being an academic, I guess, about a decade ago. You know, I mean, you can't carry on being an academic forever, or some, some academics think you can and I'd achieve whatever I'd hoped to achieve in terms of numbers of publications and number of grants. And I'd graduated 70 PhD students by that point, right? So just didn't see much point adding to that uh, hit. Uh, And I had the opportunity for exiting and also running National ICT Australia at that time, 
which was a great endeavor, uh, and I really enjoyed it. But you also have to recognize if you get into management and to leadership, I guess, in a big way, you can no longer honestly say that you're a researcher. So I moved on from that about a decade ago. And I have to say, I think my contribution now is to create the environments and to create the facilities, enable younger scientists uh, and younger engineers to do their best work. Any regrets? No, none at all. I look now, I've got to be honest, I look now at what younger academics have to go through and I think, thank God I'm not an academic. It's not the same as when I was young. The way you describe the Office of the New South Wales Chief Scientist is as an independent body, uh, yet it's you, you were appointed by the Premier. Yep. Is your role political in any way? No, not at all. In fact, I mean, it goes out of its way to be non-political and it goes out of its way to really try and maintain a significant level of independence in view and in judgment. And to be honest, uh, my, I have to say it's my predecessor, Mary O'Kane, who got ourselves into this great position. It's genuinely very highly valued. No other state has a chief scientist office which is in the same boat. Uh, we will do anything up to a dozen studies at any one time. We have a lot on at the moment. And we are genuinely asked by ministers to provide really very independent advice, typically on things which are actually relatively controversial. So, you know, water management, I'm working, for example, at the moment on what to do with the horses in the Kosciuszko National Park. You name it, if it's uh, controversial, we end up with it. And I say we're very valued for that, and we, we're proud to maintain a degree of independence. It doesn't mean we're not part of government at all, but you can still have independence and be part of government. No. So where do you get your advice, and who do you make recommendations to? So different things for different things, different uh, courses. So if I look at the studies that we perform, independent advice for government, if we're asked to do something, so for example, we've just we're just concluding one on the future of decarbonisation in the state. We will typically go out and get uh, particularly academic advisors from universities. We pay them to come in. We often search out good advisors. We'll form a, a panel, a committee. We might do the legwork, the secretariat work in terms of pulling together information, talking to outside experts, uh, actually writing the report. But we rely heavily on that expert external advice and the ability to curate that. And that, that's true in just about everything we do, energy from waste, PFAS, you, you know, any of these sorts of difficult things, we'll have that scientific judgment. And I will say it's a, a role we're trying to make more engaged in the sense that we look to universities to propose to us people who might be experts in fields that we may in future want to use. So let's say what invasive species or, you know, modeling groundwater aquifers or uh, these sorts of areas are all things that we uh, genuinely rely on academia to, to provide some of the experts. And we curate that and we have to make judgments about it. Then we provide that advice usually. So what normally happens in a project is um, a minister will request from us a particular piece of advice under a terms of reference and uh, in a set time period. And uh, I know we just completed some work on energy from waste plants, which are, again, quite controversial. And uh, the minister asked very specifically for us to look at what's out there in the world at the moment, make some proposals around what policy should look like in the future, and how we would actually state that and what are good practices and so on. So we will be asked that, we will execute on it by a certain date, and we will deliver that report back to government. They may or may not then accept our recommendations, although I will say in general they do accept our recommendations. And again, I've got to put my 
I've got to say, my predecessor, Mary O'Kane, was really the one who got that ready and going. If I was just to turn to the slightly different one now of how we fund universities and fund research and fund translational work, translational research, we don't certainly don't get commissioned to do that, although over a period we've clearly persuaded the government they need to invest in these sorts of things. In some cases, we're led by the fact that, for example, centres of excellence that we support are actually selected by the federal government through, for example, the ARC. And what we're doing is really just supporting those that end up being successful. But in other cases, we will establish, let's say, we we just established an innovation network in circular economy, and we actually went out to tender. And, you know, so various universities bid to run it, and it's supposed to be a collaborative exercise. And in another area, like what's called the Physical Sciences Fund, where we provide essentially investment to allow us to support translational research, we have an expert committee composed of venture capitalists, as well as academics, as well as industry people who basically do the selection. So again, it's, it's independent. I don't even sit on that committee, even though it's essentially funding that comes from my office. And I, and I hope that the, they will come up with good recommendations, although ultimately it's the minister who um, signs off on the expenditure of that funding. So the, the experts you uh, sort of recruit can be from outside mm-hmm. New South Wales. Is that correct? Absolutely. We yeah. very often do that. In some areas, our part of the problem is there aren't any experts in New South Wales in the field because I pick something like being, you know, experts, I don't know, in, in coal mining and things like that. You know, we, we may not have it here. And yeah. so we'll go elsewhere. All the best people around are, are, are outside. Having said that, we do try and we do try and source them from inside New South Wales. And we do try and work with right across the 11 universities in the state to uh, make sure that we've got fairly comprehensive understanding of where skills exist so that we can draw on them if we need to. And again, something to add to that, I chair something which kicked off about 18 months ago called the Waratah Research Network, which is the research across all of state government, all coming together, all in one room, with the chair of the DVCR, DVC Research Committee from universities to genuinely try and make sure that we are really in a partnership arrangement with universities when it comes to research. And to be honest, in previously, it's been very piecemeal. You know, some departments like health are very good at engaging with universities yes. and some are left good. And uh, we perhaps don't make as good a use of the expertise that we have in our universities as much as we could do. And so now we have a, a web page, at least, where the problems of government are laid out, the funding opportunities are laid out, and ideally that'll also be then be reflected back in terms of links into universities where their um, strengths and, and connections are also listed so that people in government can use it the other way around to find the people that they want to do it. So genuinely trying to build a bit more of a, a, bit more of a partnership. Right. But the people who benefit from your recommendations and from your work are people in New South Wales. Is that correct? Uh, no, we'll often input into federal uh, reviews as well. So we won't set those up. They'll often be set up somewhere else. But um, just to pick some examples, we're all involved in the new hydrogen strategy, which uh, you know is federally run, but uh, New South Wales is a big part of. The, all the stuff around COVID at the moment, there's a uh, so-called RAPID team. The RAPID is a, an acronym for something. Uh, which is chaired by the Alan Finkel, chief scientist for Australia, but all the state scientists are involved in that. So there's a degree of collaboration that goes on at that level, and it does impact not just here, but you know what happens elsewhere. 
Right. So, so, so the, the, your main collaborators are universities. You've mentioned investors. You've mentioned politicians. Who are your main other, I suppose, collaborators? Companies, industries? Yeah, so I wouldn't call them collaborators, but for example, I play a role in attracting large companies to New South Wales, as I mentioned earlier on, particularly around precincts. So yep. um, I've been very heavily involved with Aerotropolis and uh, its role in attracting large companies to the new advanced manufacturing facilities and things that will be out there. And I typically play the, the technical part in that. Equally, if I look at the tech precinct here between UTS and, and uh, Everly, central to Everly, I think the corridor, you know, I've played a fairly significant role in trying to attract digital companies for that one. And we, for example, fund the Quantum Academy, uh, which is based in the tech precinct and other sort of incentives that make that work. So large companies at that level, I've historically, that's my background, I've always been involved in the startup community and I work pretty closely with a lot of venture capital investment organizations, mainly because they give us a good advice, but equally we often hear about things that they're interested in. So we've certainly introduced them to people that they have subsequently invested in. And so, you know, we see ourselves a little bit as the connector. We're the one connector in government that genuinely has a, a significant pool of technical and scientific knowledge that spans these different areas. So why do we need a connector? I'm not surprised you're involved in this work, given you know what you've done in the last few years. But why can't universities interact with industries, big companies? Why do we need a connector? Are we not? Um, we well, well, I do. I mean, I don't. I don't do everything. Let's just be absolutely clear. You know, universities go off and talk to companies as they are. Sometimes, though, uh, what universities are weak in is collaborating with each other uh, yes. more than anything else. And so a lot of what I do is, is much more trying to connect the universities together. So if we're going to go after a, I don't know, a big space company, you know, I will go to one university and say, what about little satellites? And I'll go to another university and talk about payloads and quantum devices and so on. I mean, actually, the quantum area is a very good example. We've got many universities in New South Wales who are really good in space, right? So we've got, you know, UTS in the quantum mathematics and quantum programming. Uh, we've got Macquarie in areas like sensors. We just funded a program there, back in sensors. We've got UNSW in, you know, silicon quantum computing. We've got Sydney Uni in quantum readout, quantum devices, and quantum control. So when you look at pulling all that together, is why we have things like the Sydney Quantum Academy. It's not one university, it's all of them, because in the end, that's what's going to attract, you know, big companies to want to come here and invest big time in exploiting that technology and so on and in terms of creating a good ecosystem. So I think you need to kind of bring all those pieces together. We're not, I have to be honest, it's sometimes a little disappointing, the lack of collaboration between universities when genuinely they could achieve so much more if they work together. Well, is that because of the incentives we've built in the university systems? Yeah, uh, look, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a university expert, you know, yeah. because I've been out of, out of the universities for uh, 10 years, but certainly my experience having been back to the UK for a while, is at the top universities there. And, you know, when I was in the chief science role in the UK for defence, the top universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, UCL, which I'll point out are in the top 10 in the world, all collaborated hugely with each other because they shared facilities. They did a whole range of different things together. And I would very rarely get approached by one university at a time. I get approached by a consortium, right? right? Whereas here, that almost never happens, which is unfortunate. I have a feeling this is changing. Uh, Defence is reaching out to universities. Yes. Is that changing? I think it is. A, I, a, I think people like Defence are changing things. 
because they demand more in terms of consortia formation and so on. I uh, also have to say, I think the ARC, you know, has gone great roads, not just with the bigger centers of excellence, but with these uh, training facilities, ARC training centers and other things like that. And I think that, that that's helped significantly. But we don't have a natural culture of collaboration for whatever reason. And uh, I agree, some of that is probably the way that incentives are put together. But also a lot of it, I recognize, are incentives established at the federal level rather than a state level. And so you have to recognize the limited levers that we might have here. Our approach to this is to create collaborative networks, to offer programs that are genuinely open, and also to work holistically, like I said, with the Waratah Network, in which whole of university, whole of government can come together and genuinely get the best outcome. So I'm interested in also talking more about how ministers approach you with questions, requests. How do they identify the gaps? What are the problems that they're facing? Well, often they're they're policy decisions themselves, right? I mean, you know, I'll use an example of the decarbonisation strategy that we're currently working on. You know, it was part of the manifesto that was put up that uh, Minister Matt Keane is championing is about the future decarbonisation of the state and particularly not just putting solar cells on people's roofs and, you know, plugging in electric cars, but how do we actually create an industry out of it? You know, what is there in here that um, the state can do to create prosperity and job outcomes? And so, um, you know, he's essentially turned to Marcus to say, well, you know, take a good look at this. Tell us what the priorities are, what government can do. Because, again, you've got to recognise government doesn't do everything, right? What it does is create the right environments where things can happen and also to make bridges perhaps where it might otherwise be difficult. For example, building a big enough market for hydrogen electrolyzers that actually someone will come here and start building a plant to manufacture. They can be demand-driven rather than, you know, and create the right regulatory environment to make sure that those sorts of things not just happen but are, easy, are made easily to happen. So that, that's an example. But you could say the same about projects, I don't know, where we are involved in that are to do with, I don't know, transport. You know, you know they they often come from a manifesto and policy decisions, and they may they may come up in other in other ways. So, you know, genuinely something, you know, I guess the logical one at the moment is COVID, right? So, you know, six months ago that wasn't an issue, but now everyone's asking, well, how are we going to manufacture this stuff? What can you tell us where the companies are? Luckily, we've got an advanced manufacturing strategy in our back pocket because it's something we've been working on. You know? So they'll get they. You know, they'll come for that sort of thing. And I think the chief scientist office is an element of that. We're the technical side of things. We support the technical understanding that ministers will have out of it and the scientific judgment. Because again, you know, uh, whatever people may think, most ministers are driven by uh, evidence-based decisions and we're here to provide that evidence. But equally, you know, there are policy areas, planning areas, financial areas and so on that uh, dovetail together to deliver a, uh, an outcome. Look, I mean, it's quite interesting in government because you you learn it's not all about technology and science. And I think to some degree, that's the failing of being in, um, being in academia, right? If you think all problems are a research problem or a technical problem, whereas actually that's only 5% of delivering an outcome. <laughs> right. Uh, that's, that sounds like a big mission for two days per week. Yes, I'm knackered. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems also like a very large portfolio. So, you know, talking about robotics, transport, environment, medical research, is there anything you 
would like to focus more on or is there, is there anything you reject? How do you accept all these requests, all this work? So although I'm only two days a week, right, then let's just be clear here. I'm not the only one doing the work, sure. right? I've got many sure. people in my office yeah. who are well-qualified experts who basically get on with it. And the fact they're probably more efficient when I'm not here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think every chief scientist in every state has the freedom to kind of figure out what they're what they would like to contribute most to. And in my case, it's a, it is about translational research, right? It's something that I've always been involved in, I'm passionate about. I would genuinely like to see this state make better use of its universities. I would genuinely like to build prosperity outcomes in terms of new companies, new industries, the right sort of investment and attract the best companies here to do that uh, through precincts. And I think that I've got the right background and technical knowledge to assist the government in delivering that. What, what are the hanging part of it? Part of it, just to finish that, part of it is not me doing it, but me influencing the people who can do it. So, you know, making sure that I work closely with Treasury so that they understand their value of investing a dollar in research, work closely with planning or with Global New South Wales to make sure we're approaching the right companies with the right proposition to ensure that when we make some big announcements about something that, let's say, the recent one was on space, that we're actually investing in an area that uh, genuinely really could build future wealth, future jobs, future outcomes. Uh, for the state. So I influence people more than anything else. Always thinking about the, the benefits for people in New South Wales. Is that what the, the sort of the beacon or the driver? Uh, yeah, I think, I think in terms of an impact area, yes. The fact that you do work that ultimately has an impact globally is a great bonus, right? You certainly, you again, pick something like decarbonisation. Yes. Decarbonisation impacts everybody, right? And if we are good enough to develop the right kinds of technology or support the manufacturer, the right types of equipment here, then that'll impact everybody. And you would expect that. But first and foremost, yeah, you, you have to have an impact at some level. And um, we start with New South Wales and the people of New South Wales. How do you measure impact? I know that's a, it's easy to ask. So I use the word advisedly. Um, prosperity is the word I use. It's a word I borrowed from my time in the UK. They always talk about the prosperity agenda there. What that practically means, it means economic and social outcomes. And economic outcomes are measured in areas like jobs, GDP growth, new industries, exports, and so on. And social outcomes are really in the quality of life. You know, whether it's, again, people in employment, people being able to get to and from work, people having green spaces that are not polluted, et cetera, et cetera, having the educational opportunities that they deserve. So prosperity outcomes are what I talk about, economic and social impact. And in your quest to facilitate translation and commercialization, what are the low-hanging fruit? What can we do better in the short term? Look, I've just been having this conversation with someone. You know, I think I think there's you know there's a kind of a three-stage pipeline here, right? One of them, well, at the top level, it's to do with larger companies. Larger companies invest a greater proportion of their income in R and D. Uh, to be honest, we don't have many big companies here, and a first step is actually to attract more companies to come and do R&D in Australia. We've got lots of strengths. Most of these companies look for skills. First and foremost, that's what will bring them here. But they might also look for niche technologies. And again, we're not going to be, you know, to be honest, we're not going to be manufacturing cars here, but we might be manufacturing quantum sensors. And that's that's an important new industry. And, uh, you know, I was talking to a venture capitalist last week, and he was sharing with me his portfolio of companies. And interestingly, half of his companies are actually in manufacturing now. 
So mm. things are changing in a big way, right, in the way that we actually invest. And I think that's, that's, that's important. So the other part of that is to really look at the translational part, which is to look at universities or offer the opportunity for researchers, whether they're in universities or in other research organizations, to take an idea and convert it into a company, okay? And there are some big successes in that area. I chair something called the Medical Devices Fund, which has been a huge success. It's, uh, you know, put, I think, in over about seven or eight years, it's put 50 million into medical device startups, and they have attracted well over 700 million in external investment. And a number of companies have spun out with valuations bigger than a billion dollars. Manufacturing, again, uh, medical devices of various descriptions. And that's kind of an area we're good at. And as a consequence, we set up in our own office the Physical Sciences Fund, uh, which is essentially the Medical Devices Fund with the word medical replaced with physical. (laughs) Uh, And uh, because it worked so well, why change it, right? (laughs) And we are basically doing the same thing. We look for companies that are, you know, maybe a year or two out of the university who genuinely need supporting over the value of death to get their first product out the line, to do clinical trials, to do whatever it takes to really build a business that will be attractive for other people to invest in. So there's this kind of pipeline of things that you kind of need to build that, that ecosystem. And each of them needs a little bit of support just to make, to provide the right glue to make things happen. Universities are an important part of that all the way through the chain, in my view, because in the end, you know, I like to make the point to the people in treasury, the reason big companies come here is because of the skills and R&D the universities produce. <laughs> the reason that we've got things we can fund in out of the medical device community is because universities are producing the ideas to make that happen. Yeah. And we need to connect them all together. But something is, which is easy to do is to extract research or ideas or results and, and transfer them into companies. What is much harder is to create a longer-lasting relationship between universities and industries, companies. Yep. So I, I mean, you put my old academic hat back on, you know, I mean, I used to, and I, you know, while I was at university, I raised an awful lot of money from industry in lots of different ways. And I observed why, I guess, other people struggle to do that. And I encapsulated it in that just uh, misquoting uh, John Kennedy's uh, thing, you know, ask not what your industry partner can do for you, rather ask what your, can, you can do for your industry partner. Yes. In the sense that most people look at an industry partner and say, how can I get them to give me money to do my research? Whereas actually you should be asking, now what's their problem? How can I help? And then you will get transformation. And in certain instances, you know, I had partnerships that lasted decades with companies, you know, who we funded us over the period, you know, tens, 20, 30 million dollars, huge amounts of money, all right, that in the end transformed the industry. And it's those sorts of relationships you can build and, and they, they are built periodically. But you need to change a little bit of the attitude to that. And let me say, you know, working for an industry is not, in my view, detrimental at all to fundamental research. Uh, very often, it's those applications that make you ask the fundamental questions as to why the whole field doesn't seem to be thinking about uncertainty, for example. <laughs> Talking about industries, my, my, my impression is that industries, companies value academic research a lot. Is that... Are your observation as well? Do you have to do a lot to convince industries to work with universities? No, not at all. I agree with you. Uh, industries value, they value smart people doing clever things that will have an impact. They don't really care whether they're in a university or in a, in a garage, frankly. Yes. As long as, uh, <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we, 
we get we get misled by the fact that you know companies are buying into a university. They're not. They're buying into smart people <laughs> and smart ideas. And so, making yourself. I think sometimes companies find it difficult to engage universities. Where's the front door? How do I start? It all looks so intimidating. That sort of thing. Even for a big company, sometimes how to negotiate is difficult. But when they do, and they get to know universities, and they, you know, they will engage as thoroughly as anyone. I remember actually. You know, one of my very first large projects when I first came to Australia was automating the container terminals, you know, at Port Botany and in Brisbane. And about a year into the project, the guy from the executive from um, Patrick's came into my office at the university because he'd never really been in the university. <laughs> and he said, well, if only I'd studied hard when I was younger, I would have, I would have learned something and I would, I would have got a decent job. <laughs> but his point being that this wasn't aware of what universities were capable of doing. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by making it look more complex and difficult than it is. Companies want to do that. They clearly are motivated by the profit side of things, uh, having an impact, doing things. If you can help them on that journey, then they will be eternally grateful. I also really like that you started with describing one of your responsibilities as uh, providing facts. And you don't shy away from working on controversial topics or, or subjects and, and and you talked about COVID as well and I think it's particularly important that um, we hear scientists and researchers more talking about facts delivering facts how do you ensure that you're always providing facts and, and are people valuing facts I you know I mean you need I mean there are two paths right there is genuinely constructing evidence and listening to different opinions so that you know you've got data to support a particular argument or indeed to, to disprove an argument, which is just as important. I will say there is a limit to that. One of the most difficult conversations I have to have with policymakers is not data. It's the fact that they don't understand uncertainty, right? They do not understand the fact that no, no amount of data gives you complete certainty about something, right? right? And in fact, in many cases, there is no data which can provide certainty. So I have not, in, I've in the past, I've been, been uh, talking to a policymaker who said, well, the science says this. And I say to him, the science doesn't disprove that. <laughs> you know, but there are many other alternate interpretations of the same information. <laughs> and they find they struggle with that a little bit. Uh, but anyone who's in science knows that that is what science is about. Science is about understanding and using uncertainty in the data that you have in order not to necessarily prove something, but to disprove that the converse isn't true. Besides a lot of what we talked about, I find there is also, there's, we, we talked about science and, and, and research. Obviously, education will play a very important role in creating the future experts, the future, future scientists, future leaders. Is that a big part of your job as well? No, it's not. You're, you're, you're exactly correct. I mean, I've mentioned already, skills are the big thing that companies come and ask for more than anything else and universities produce them. And I will say a lot of those skills are not just the core technical ability to do A, B, or C, but also those other elements around judgment, the word uncertainty before, and understanding that there is a process of understanding, digesting evidence, and using that evidence to design, construct, and make decisions, and then execute on them. And to a little, a little degree, I mean, we, again, have lost that slightly when I think about problem-solving skills in general. We talk a lot about it as a, as a skill set, but universities still have a little way, I think, to probably deliver that kind of outcome. 
I think a number of universities you know, come to mind, I won't mention names, who are genuinely now thinking about courses, not courses, but programs that, that have that as a significant attribute because that's in the end what many companies want. So even in the digital area, it's not just enough to know how to program. Uh, you've got to know how to look at a problem, figure out what its components are, try and break it down, try and reassemble it, try and analyze the data, come up with a recommendation and execute on it and then sell it as a product, right? It's not just one thing or another. And so we've got a little way to go in terms of pragmatically building those sorts of um, skill sets. But I think universities are beginning to think about it now. And maybe the you know, outcome of the COVID thing is that people will think a little bit more deeply about how we deliver that kind of skill set. Right. Great. Hugh, I think I've taken a lot of your time and I'm very grateful. I understand a lot yep. more about your, your role and responsibilities. I love the fact that you're thinking about facts and an impact and trying to bring different partners together. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? <laughs> uh, you should have asked me what I do in the other three days a week. I, should, okay. I, I thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not an academic and you're not a, a, a New, the New South Wales chief scientist. So I have a, have a truly multidisciplinary career, right? One, one, so for the remaining days, I basically, I do... I work for Rio Tinto and yes. I run their automation and data analytics program. So I have an industry component. And in the other part of my time, I work for the University of Sydney, but not as an academic. So I have a government, industry and academic role every week. Thank you very much. Okay. Cheers then. Thank you everyone for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for What.